turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. After our season of Advent and our week of prayer, we are again returning to our studies in John. In John chapter 14, Jesus mentions the word Father more times than he does in the following chapters as he is speaking with his disciples on this last evening before his death. In verses 27 to 31, we read, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. The Passion Translation reads, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you. I am going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really loved me, you would be happy that I am going to the Father who is greater than I am. I have told you these things before they happen, so that when they do happen, you will believe. We're going to focus tonight on what Jesus is saying here in verse 27. This gift that he is giving to his disciples peace. When you hear the word peace, what comes to your mind? What do you associate with the word peace? A song, a setting, an experience? We hear sirens here dozens of times a day. Going by, fire truck, police, ambulance. When we were in Wisconsin in November, and it was snowing, we were staying in a place that was off the beaten path. And if you went outside during the snow, it was so quiet that you could hear the snowflakes as they landed on top of one another. Ah, that was peace. Let's look at the words of Jesus. Let's look at the immensity of what he is saying in such a few words. First of all, he gives us this promise of peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. A little bit later in the evening, Jesus will say to his disciples in John 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, in these few sentences, there are some very significant things. You and I can readily relate to the words of Jesus, in this world, you will have trouble. And most of us long for the time when we will be out of this world and in the presence of Jesus. Because we know that there will be perfect peace. There will be no more trouble, no more anxiety, nothing else to give us fear or disquiet us, no stress. In this world, we are all too familiar with the trouble that it brings. But while we are here, Jesus gives us these promises. 
and tells us, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Let's begin to widen our scope of perspective a bit. Everything spoken of in the Old Testament or in the previous covenant was based on its fulfillment by the coming one, the Messiah. In other words, whatever it was, every sacrifice that was offered, every blessing that was spoken, all emphasized the inadequacies of the existing order and the need for a truly sufficient work. That is one of the things that the writer of Hebrews emphasizes for us. That the sacrifices of animals could not cleanse a guilty conscience. They could not change a sin-prone heart. They could not give better promises, a stronger hope, and enablement to live righteously and godly. They could not adequately bring us near to the Lord. So everything that was said in the Old Testament, every time that someone offered a sacrifice, every promise that was made, was based on something in the future, based on fulfillment by the promised one, the Messiah. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It was spoken in greeting. It was spoken in blessing. It was spoken in benediction and goodbye. When you met someone, you said shalom. When you left their home, you said shalom. When you pronounce blessing, it was with this word. Shalom represented wholeness. Where nothing was broken, nothing was missing, nothing was dysfunctional. It represented sufficiency, well-being, prosperity. But beyond these aspects of affirmation, the prophet Isaiah anticipated one who would be called the Prince of Shalom. The highest evidence and manifestation of peace. Zechariah anticipated this prophetic messianic hope as being imminent just around the corner. When filled by the Holy Spirit, he prophesied at the birth of his son. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. It was just nine months later when this prophetic messianic hope that Zechariah was anticipating was announced as fulfilled to the Bethlehem shepherds. And the angel declared, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And then all of the heavenly hosts of angels joined that announcement and sang, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. So there's prophetic messianic hope that is anticipated, but now there is prophetic messianic hope that has been fulfilled. How has it been fulfilled? The Savior has been born today in Bethlehem, was the declaration of the angels. And so it's interesting that Jesus, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, 
when we open the Gospels and begin to look at them, he had remarkably little to say about peace. We read of a few occasions when he healed someone and then said to them, Go in peace. In three post-resurrection appearances that John records for us, Jesus greeted his anxious disciples with the blessing, Peace be to you, or Shalom. The words that we have read in this evening that he is with his disciples, this parting promise of peace, is his most extensive theology regarding a ministry that was uniquely the domain of the Messianic Prince of Peace. And yet, we have only a few lines here. So an aspect of the coming work of the Prince of Peace that was unique, that was prominent, and that was descriptive of him by name. Yet when Jesus speaks to his disciples, it is simply to say these things. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And in me, you may have peace. That is pretty much the sum of Jesus' theology concerning himself, the Prince of Peace. It's also significant for us, especially for us as human beings, especially with all of our susceptibilities to stress and anxiety, to worry, to fear. To note the other words that Jesus said here, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, one of the things that Zechariah spoke of was this way of peace that the coming Messiah would bring. God is speaking in Isaiah 59 and verse 8. He declares that it's the sins of the people who have caused him to turn his face away from them. And then he declared, The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. In Isaiah 53, the chapter about the suffering servant, we read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now again, remembering that the Messiah would be known as the Prince of Peace. That he was prophesied by Zechariah to be bringing the way to peace. And then looking at Jesus, the Messiah, saying, Peace I give you. We need to look at the big picture that brings us to the words of Jesus. So we go all the way back to the beginning of time. There is darkness, chaos, formlessness, there's nothing. The Spirit of God is moving and hovering. God speaks and through the one who is the Word, the genius of the Father is actualized. And we read that God created. He spoke and there was. He spoke and there was. And God looks at it all and it is good. 
And God creates this garden and he plants all these wonderful things in it and creates Adam and Eve and they are placed in this environment that is perfect. And then the tempter comes and Eve listens to him. Adam partakes of the forbidden fruit with Eve. And you and I find that the very first impact of sin was the loss of peace. Adam and Eve lost their assurance and their peace of heart. You remember what happened. Suddenly they felt shame as they looked at themselves and one another and realized that they were naked. They lost their assurance and their peace of heart. They tried to regain it by sewing together fig leaves and covering themselves. And then when the Lord God came in the evening to meet with them, they hid. Why? They had lost their peace. They couldn't face him. They had no assurance. What did Adam say? I was afraid. And so I hid. Again, he had lost his assurance, his peace of heart. And when the Lord God questioned them, they became perpetrators of blame. And when God carried out his sentence, they were thrust into a hostile world. Adam began to experience the earth, resisting him, hostile to his efforts. Eve experienced pain in childbirth. They experienced the pain, the heartache, and the horror of the fratricide that occurred between their children when their son Cain, enraged with jealousy, killed his brother Abel. All of these things, the loss of peace. You and I, as we read through the scripture, we see circumstance after circumstance. Until finally we come to Exodus, and there are the people of God in Egypt. They don't have peace. Instead, they are experiencing cruel and violent edicts by Pharaoh, slavery and hardship. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord delivers them. He brings them out of that setting. And there in Sinai, God instituted sacrifices for sin and the office of priest mediators to achieve reconciliation between the people who were sinful and God who was holy. And in that setting, and with the institution of those things, God gave a revelation of his nature and his heart. And we find it especially in the blessing that he gave to Moses to give to Aaron and his sons. And his commandment that they would pronounce that blessing and in doing so put his name on the people. The words of that blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Do you remember what we just saw in Isaiah 59? God said, my arm is not short that I cannot reach you, and my ear is not deaf that I cannot hear you, but it's your sins that have caused me to turn my face away from you. And then God went on to say that those who are walking in those ways would never know peace. 
God's heart was to give his people a way back, a way to peace. And so in giving the law, God was providing a way of peace for his people. And yet, as we well know from the accounts, as we read through Exodus, Numbers, as we read through Joshua and into Judges, God's people would invariably lose the way of peace and find themselves at odds with God. And it happened over and over and over again. And in the midst of one of those times, the angel of the Lord appeared to a frightened man with this assurance. Peace, do not be afraid. And then we read that during this encounter, Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. I find this so intriguing. In the midst of the punishment for sin, the loss of identity, of sovereignty, enslaved by the Midianites, Gideon down in a wine press where he hopes no one will see him, an angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord, the scripture says, appeared to him. Now we understand those references, the angel of the Lord, to be a pre-incarnate appearance of the one who came as the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. His words to frightened Gideon, peace. And Gideon, in turn, built an altar to the Lord. And he named that altar Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. When you and I read the record of the Old Testament, it's anything but a history of peace. Nevertheless, we see that God continued to reveal his heart for peace and the way to peace. In Psalm 85, a psalm written by the sons of Korah, are these words, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. This really is a very substantive, a very profound writing by the sons of Korah, Levites, responsible for worship in the temple. I will listen to what the Lord says. He promises peace. He promises peace. But don't let his people return to folly. That will rob them of peace. And then he went on to say words that were so significant. His salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in the land. And this sentence that we have read is a profoundly theological sentence. It is beautiful. It is descriptive. It is winsome when we read it. But it is profoundly theological. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, wrote their prophecies 
during a time when judgment was beginning to escalate. Isaiah wrote prophetically of judgment, and yet he also wrote very extensively about peace. Jeremiah was writing during the time when judgment was inevitable. It would not be revoked. And he would live through all of the violent days and through multiple stages of judgment and destruction until finally he wrote in his lamentations about the loss of peace and how his heart now knows no peace. Ezekiel had already been deported as part of that judgment, as part of the inevitable consequence of God's people turning to folly. And in his vision, he sees the glory of God leave the temple, leave the people of Israel, and disappear. And he writes again and again of that loss of peace. And yet we come to a point in Ezekiel's prophecy where the Lord promised a covenant of everlasting peace. Something far different from anything that had been experienced or that was being experienced. And through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord declared the identity and implied the means through which this covenant of everlasting peace would be established. And we read these words, Jeremiah 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. You and I recognize this to be an eminently messianic promise. We understand the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to be that righteous branch. He is the King. And this covenant of everlasting peace that the Lord has promised, the Lord also declares the identity of the one who will accomplish it. And through the name that is ascribed to him, the Lord implies the means through which this covenant will be established. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. So, let's bring these things together. In the Prince of Peace, righteousness and peace kiss each other, Psalm 85.10. And although the disciples have not yet grasped it, in Jesus the Messiah, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to them. Those were the words of the Apostle Paul, his description in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. And through the sacrifice of Jesus. The new covenant would be established. The one Ezekiel was prophetically writing about. The one that Jesus addressed when he took the cup after supper and gave it to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is for the forgiveness of sins for many. And the words that we read earlier, 
from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. Through the Messiah, a punishment for sin, sufficient for peace, would be executed. And thus, righteousness and peace would kiss one another. Through Christ the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, it is through him, it is through his work, that God's character of righteousness and God's heart of peace are satisfied. Thus, righteousness and peace kiss each other. It is through the work of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that God is able to accomplish reconciliation. How does he achieve it? The Apostle Paul writes to us in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 and said that God achieved reconciliation of all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so, although Jesus, in his theology of peace, has just three brief statements to say to his disciples, everything that has been anticipated, everything that has been prophesied, everything that has occurred because of sin that brought brokenness and destroyed peace, and everything that is necessary for peace to be restored has been accomplished in Jesus. And so he can say to his disciples, it is my peace. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, he himself is our peace. We have been brought near through his blood. We have been reconciled through his blood. And he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and abolished the hostility and the enmity. It is my peace. In Romans chapter 3, in particular, the Apostle Paul juxtaposes or brings together at a junction all of these different things. There is the absolute sinfulness of man, the total depravity of sinful human nature. There is the effort to be right through the law, but all the law does is bring an unyielding, inflexible, unsatisfiable awareness and consciousness of sin. Then there is punishment. God making Christ an atonement for sin. There is righteousness that he speaks about prolifically in chapter 4. And there is peace. All of these things that before Jesus Christ stood against one another were polar opposites, incompatible. Oil and water are now brought together. Righteousness and peace kissing together. And he climaxed all of that with this glorious summary. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, now let's pause for just a moment. When we think back just a few verses into chapter 4, he writes that, Righteousness is credited to us, to us who through faith 
Believe in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So again, this work of the one who is known and who was anticipated as the Prince of Peace, his death for our sins, his atonement paying the penalty and achieving peace, his resurrection that enables us to have justification just as if we had never sinned. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, Jesus will say just these few sentences concerning peace to his disciples at this point. They are far more profound than his disciples realize, and far more profound than you and I appreciate when we are reading through this chapter. But the reality is, the fact of the matter is, that it's Jesus himself who is peace. It is the Prince of Peace speaking these words. It is the one who is the righteousness of God, who will make payment for our sin, and thus the punishment placed on him will give us Peace through his blood shed on the cross. It is his work of righteousness, of righteous making, that will bring about you and I being declared righteous in the sight of God when we put our faith in the work of the Prince of Peace. At the end of this evening with his disciples, John chapter 17, Jesus will pray. This word glory will be prominent in his prayer. The expectation of hope will be prominent. Jesus himself will be anticipating now that he has completed the work of the Father who sent him to make peace through his blood shed on the cross, Jesus will anticipate being restored to the glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world. And his longing will be one of hope. His prayer will be a prayer of hope. Father, I want them to be with me those who believe in me, those who trust in me and trust in my work, I want them to be with me so that they will see the glory that I share with you. You and I could not have the hope of glory if it were not for the work of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. This peace achieved by Jesus and given to those who are his disciples is unlike anything that the world gives. It resolves condemnation. Sin brings condemnation. Sin brings guilt. Sin brings shame. Sin brings judgment. But the Apostle Paul would write, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through his work of peace, a reconciliation that is infinitely extensive, there is no condemnation. 
The Apostle Paul will write later in that 8th chapter of Romans, who is going to condemn? Who is going to accuse? No one, because it is God who justifies. And even more, it is Christ who is at the right hand of the Father who eternally intercedes for us. This peace rules our unstable hearts. Our hearts vacillate so easily. Everything that is not peace is caused by sin. Remember, peace was the first consequence of sin in the Garden of Eden. And sin produces every dysfunctionality that we experience in our emotions, in our thinking, our feelings, our heart. It is because of sin that we are anxious, fearful, depressed, despondent, discouraged. It is because of sin that we fret. We get angry. We are susceptible to resentment. But there is a peace that can rule our hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. There is a work that Jesus does that is greater than every consequence, every impact, every effect of sin. This peace that Jesus has accomplished exerts a supernatural influence on us. It transcends our understanding. It is something that we cannot put into words, but we can experience its supernatural influence upon us. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. The effect of righteousness, Isaiah prophesied, would be peace. And you and I experience that effect. It sanctifies us so that we are blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wonderful words that the Apostle Paul spoke to the Thessalonians at the end of his first letter. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. When I think of that term, Prince of Peace, I think of a number of things. That Jesus, Jesus is the highest expression of peace. That he has the authority to make peace. That his kingdom is a kingdom of peace as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He is the embodiment of peace. He has a provision of peace that touches every area of our lives. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. This is why Jesus could say to his disciples, don't be afraid and don't let your hearts be troubled. In this world, you will have trouble, but be encouraged. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And here's a wonderful truth that I take hold of, that I need. Left on my own, 
I have such an unstable heart. And I am so prone to the instabilities of heart, to discouragement, despondency, to being distressed, disheartened, depressed. But I have a Prince of Peace. And his work as the Prince of Peace is such a thorough work. A through and through work. A work that can sanctify every part of me that has been impacted by sin and its peace-destructive work. My whole spirit soul, and body can be affected by the work of the Prince of Peace, is covered by the extensiveness of what he accomplished in dealing with the root of what destroys peace, sin. He has overcome. And his victory is our sufficiency, our help, our adequacy, our healing, our encouragement, our support, our strength, our confidence, our assurance. Everything that Adam and Eve lost is restored through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And once again, all is right between you and me and God. When we sang during the Christmas season, Joy to the World, we sang these words. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. The peace I give, Jesus said, is nothing like the peace of this world. It is not transient. It doesn't require me buying something and trying to enjoy it. It is a permanent peace, an everlasting covenant, a deep assurance that God himself has established and will not rescind an everlasting covenant of peace. Hallelujah. Next week, we're going to look a little bit more into the words of Jesus because the disciples are not experiencing the peace that Jesus is offering to them. And when the evening comes and the dangers mount, they are going to experience anything but peace. And yet, the peace is available to them. And it's available to you and to me, regardless of the circumstances that we might experience as his disciples. And so next week we'll Take the words of Jesus, well, endeavor through the Holy Spirit to enter into them a little bit deeper so that we can truly lay hold of this peace that he is promising to us, the peace that is he himself, the Prince of Peace. Father, we thank you that your heart is a heart of reconciliation. That you are a God of peace. We thank you that when the only possibility of making peace with us was through the blood of your Son shed on the cross, you were pleased to do so. We thank you tonight, Lord Jesus, that you have overcome this world. 
You've overcome sin. You've overcome the flesh. You've overcome the devil. And we can overcome in you. We thank you that you are the answer and the sufficiency for every need, every brokenness, every fear, every anxiety, every hostility. Father, in this broken, divided world, in this world that is feared, filled with endless fear and anxiety, we pray that your peace would rule in our hearts. It would rule our spirits. That in no way would we ever manifest the spirit of this world, but only the spirit of Christ, the Prince of Peace. Father, we pray for the body of Christ that is so deeply divided, divided by race, divided by doctrine, divided by a host of things. Father, we pray that every part of your body would come under the rule of the Prince of Peace. We pray that you would rule over each of our hearts so that there is true peace, deep peace, intimate peace. Father, in all of the uncertainty that we experience, we pray that the peace that transcends understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the peace that you give us. We thank you tonight that we are right with the Father, the righteous judge, that we have been justified through your work of peace. Hallelujah. We pray that your peace would rule in our hearts, rule in our homes, in our marriages and our families, in our perspectives, and that you would keep us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. Hallelujah. Bless your people, I pray. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.